0: Welcome to Reeling from Religion, I'm your host Kyla Thorne. Reeling is defined as to lose one's balance and stagger or lurch violently. Can you relate? Here on Reeling from Religion, we're sharing our stories of religious trauma and spiritual abuse. I invite you to listen in on the days you need to feel a little less alone and crazy. We're in this together. Today, in episode one, I'm sharing part of my story. I invite especially those of you who knew me as a child to keep in mind that I can only share from my perspective and that these same circumstances may have been experienced differently by the other people in my life. My goal in the process of sharing my story is to remain kind and respectful of those of you who differ with me while honoring what felt true for me. One of the hardest things about preparing to share my story with y'all is this feeling that I shouldn't feel the way I do. My story feels so benign. There's no big earth-shattering event that went terribly wrong. As a trauma recovery coach now, I know that's how complex trauma works. It's the accumulation of many, maybe smaller things. I can hold that space for my clients, but when it comes to my story, there's a part of me that feels like my pain is invalid, my story harmless. Something's wrong with me that it broke me. I'm overreacting, that nothing bad enough happened for me to be feeling this way, that my experience doesn't deserve a mention, that my story doesn't deserve airtime, that I'm going to be laughed at and just further dismissed, that someone is going to say, she's got trauma from that, that sharing my story is going to make me feel less seen, less understood, Well, this is all really unprofessional to disclose. It's part of my story. And if it's part of my story, maybe it's part of yours too. And since this is the place for sharing our stories, here goes. I was about four or five years old when mom filled out and mailed in one of those interest cards she'd pulled from the pocket of the blue hardcover Bible storybook in our dentist's office waiting area. It would be a while before a culporter, that's what the salesmen of these books are called, would finally stop by. But when they did, things changed for our family. Ironically, about 13 years later, I would become a culporter myself, and then a trainer of culporters. But back to childhood. I was raised in a very small, predominantly Amish Mennonite town with a population of only 100 to 150 people in southern Ontario, Canada. Surrounded by farms, many worked with horse-drawn equipment, Amish and Mennonite-run businesses, gardening and food preservation a normal part of life, horses and buggies traveling our little streets. The normality of stepping around horse manure as we walk down the street, the waft of fresh baked goods or summer sausage curing, playing outside in the sandbox, snow forts and tobogganing in winter, the beautiful maple trees that got tapped each year for making syrup, the row of fragrant peonies in our yard. It was really kind of idyllic. My parents were born-again Christians, like many of the non-Amish, non-Mennonites in our small town. The only church I remember attending as a small child was the Pentecostal church, but unlike the Pentecostals I've encountered here in the U.S., where the women wear skirts and don't cut their hair, these Pentecostals looked like your average Canadian. We were extremely liberal, compared to many of our Amish and Mennonite neighbors. I mean, we girls wore pants. Mom wore makeup and jewelry and had styled hair. Our car didn't meet the standards of most the orders of Mennonites that did drive cars in our area. We were pretty worldly. With the coalporter's visit to our home, my mom came to learn about the Seventh Day Adventist message and the writings of Ellen G. White, the by then deceased prophet of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. These writings were referred to as the Spirit of Prophecy, a term I will use repeatedly in this episode. Built on the belief that Saturday, the seventh day of the week, is the biblical Sabbath to be observed, and that Jesus is coming for the second time very soon, there was a lot of emphasis on being ready for the second coming and helping others to get ready. With the added pressure that of those alive when Jesus comes, Only those keeping the seventh-day Sabbath would be saved. Part of being ready was living up to all the light that you know, also known as following all the truth in the Bible and spirit of prophecy. For us, this meant down to the smallest details. Our neighbors and extended family weren't on board with our new faith and sudden, seemingly extreme lifestyle changes. All of a sudden, we were more on the outside of this idyllic community and life than we had ever been. We became more careful with our associations. I didn't see my best friend Lauren down the street or my neighbor friend Laura as much anymore. Our grandparents lived only a few minutes away, but we weren't on the same page anymore, so we kept them at arm's length. They weren't one of us, so technically they were against us. And they celebrated holidays we no longer celebrated, like Christmas, Easter, etc. Even the holidays we did celebrate, like Thanksgiving, we didn't generally celebrate with family anymore because we were different. Even our Amish and Mennonite neighbors were off in so many ways compared to our new beliefs. They needed converting, too. There was one reason to associate with others who didn't believe the same as us, and that was to convert them to our truth. Even the ones who we fellowshipped with often didn't follow the rules as closely as we did, so in many ways we were superior to them and needed to bring them to our way of believing. It was a lonely and isolating experience, but at least we were the ones with the truth. It was a tug of war between the certainty and superiority of having the truth and the desire for connection, to belong as a member of the human family. I was special, I had the truth, the one and only truth, and everyone needed it. And I was also alone, because no one outside my family followed it exactly like we did. We observed the Sabbath from sundown Friday night, beginning with a special Sabbath opening worship service, to sundown Saturday evening. Friday was preparation day, during which we cleaned the house, ironed our clothes, made sure the shoes we'd wear the next day were clean, prepared the next day's meals, showered and washed our hair, and searched our hearts for any unknown or unconfessed sin so we could go into the Sabbath ready. We avoided unnecessary activities on the Sabbath. During the Sabbath hours, our dishes would be neatly piled in the sink after meals, since washing dishes was technically unnecessary work, and it could wait. The Sabbath day we then spent fellowshipping with fellow Sabbath keepers, reading or studying the Bible or spirit of prophecy ourselves, gentle walks outside in nature, and maybe distributing materials about our beliefs. One of my vivid memories of this was leaving copies of Jan Markison's book, The National Sunday Law, under the windshield wipers of vehicles parked near one of our nature walks. Other than nature walks, more strenuous exercise and activities such as biking, canoeing, or swimming were reserved for other days of the week, as well as was all play. Our language and conversation was especially guarded to make sure we didn't speak of business or unholy pursuits. We were also to guard our thoughts against anything secular or unsabbathy during this time. Work was not to be spoken of, as that was equivalent to actually working on the Sabbath. Thinking about work was also equivalent to actually working, so with these things, we desired to honor what was written in Isaiah 58, 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. As the sun set Saturday evening, we'd have a special worship time to close the Sabbath, careful to guard the edges of the Sabbath by adding on a few extra minutes just to be safe. And then we would wash the dishes and get the mail. Despite the fact that Mom had embraced the Seventh-day Adventist message, we didn't actually attend the Seventh-day Adventist church. We believed them to be in apostasy, as their standards of dress, diet, adornment, Sabbath observance, etc. weren't in line with what we understood was so clearly outlined in the spirit of prophecy. Rather than attend church, we home-churched with some families who had either left or been kicked out of the SDA church for speaking up about the low standards. Generally, once a month, we also participated in a gathering where disgruntled SDAs, Seventh-day Adventists, gathered to hear speakers from the independent SDA ministries who had been flown in from other Canadian provinces or from the U.S., These were ministries that also held to the fundamental SDA doctrines, but also mourned the apostasy of the SDA church and made it their mission to hold on to the truth, calling out the sins of the church. I mean, it was our responsibility biblically to sigh and cry for these things that were being done. One of the things I remember from our gatherings were the men sitting around excitedly discussing conspiracy theories end-time events, and persecution, like it was the most exciting thing to look forward to. They'd conjure up survival scenarios and talk about preparing for that time. As a child, it was very disconcerting. The history of the Waldensian Christians who lived long time ago in the Alps was of particular inspiration to us. The way that they preserved the truth and trained their children in it and then were hunted for it and often killed was a prototype of what we were to aim for and expect. We heard the story multiple times of when hundreds or thousands of them lost their lives, men, women, and children, babies. Their bodies splattered on the ground at the bottom of the cliff their enemies had chased them over. Stories of great reformers like John Huss, who was burned at the stake for standing for truth, were held up as our example. This was paired with the Bible teaching that in the end of time, the persecution of God's people who stood for truth would be far worse than any level of persecution that had happened up until that time. This is what we had to look forward to, because we were special. Children would be torn from their parents. Spouses would have to choose between the Sabbath and watching their child or spouse tortured in front of them. We would flee into the wilderness, suffering hunger, loss, death. And the message was that those who love God look forward to this, that it's an honor to suffer for God's sake. Suffering, extreme inhumane suffering, was the lot of all who followed God wholeheartedly of all who would be saved, and I needed to want it, to look forward to it. I had a choice between this suffering and heaven, or destruction and, I don't know, love, connection, acceptance. It feels twisted. It was terrifying, but I had to keep my feelings under wrap. My salvation depended upon it. Already careful with our diet due to some allergies. With the health reform message, we also became vegan vegetarian. Ellen G. White wrote about the use of animal products and how God's people at the end of time won't be using them. We didn't. Not even a speck. Health reform included daily exercise. We were known in our town as the family that walked, religiously. Getting to bed by 930 Properly clothing one's limbs, arms, and legs to avoid chilling. Not eating fruit and vegetables in the same meal. Good posture and deep breathing. Avoiding processed food and stimulants, specifically black pepper, anything with vinegar like pickles, ketchup. Baking soda, baking powder, mustard, or cinnamon. It was believed that these stimulants are unhealthy for the body and as temples of the Holy Spirit... We must do everything to preserve that. It was important that we abstain from these at all times without exception, as quoting Luke 16:10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, meaning that these little things are just as significant in showing our faithfulness to God as the other choices we make to follow him so the awkwardness of asking our hosts or fellow church friends that were a little less principled than us what ingredients were in the food wasn't at all unusual. I still feel like a badass rule breaker pretty much every time I measure up baking soda into my baking or sprinkle black pepper on my food. Such defiance and rebellion. Dress reform found in the writings of Ellen G. White also brought some changes. As girls, we wore long dresses, skirts, or jumpers, regardless of the activity, even swimming. Anyone else wore jumpers? They were a sleeveless dress under which we wore a shirt for modesty. Our clothes were to be loose and not at all form-fitting. They were to be free from bold colors or large patterns. We definitely avoided red and plaid, as well as big flowers and other patterns nothing bringing attention to ourselves. The men were to wear long pleated pants, never shorts, never shirtless, even while swimming. To this day, I don't know if I have seen my father or brother shirtless. Hmm, don't know. I remember hearing a criticism made of a friend of ours who wore baggy sweatpants. They were too revealing. There was to be absolutely no makeup or jewelry. For women, hair was to be longish, definitely not colored and not too styled not curled or permed at all unless it was naturally curled from sleeping on it braided or something like that if we wore a hair clip because god forbid we wear our hair down and tempt some man to sin by being attractive it must be a plain color pretty close to the color of our hair men's hair must be cut short but not too stylish not bald either We must be neat and tidy, but not bringing attention to ourselves. The message I got? Hide. I remember a woman who used to come visit us who seemed equally serious about serving God. Except that she used cinnamon in her cookies, damn it. She wore a vest over her tops to conceal her female form. That seemed wise, I thought. Maybe I should do that. It seemed faithful. I remember thinking about sewing a Mennonite dress, The one with the extra layers on the front? I don't remember what it was called. Actually, I think we did sew one. Reading the booklet called The Sin of Bathsheba when I was maybe 11 years old helped to reinforce these principles. You know, like, don't bend over to pick something up in front of a guy, don't apply chapstick in the presence of a guy, and a review of all the other usuals. The book called Thy Nakedness also provided many detailed examples of all the do and do nots of modest dressing for women. The message was pretty simple. As a girl, I was 11, my responsibility was to hide my femininity, to protect men from sinning. As you might imagine, TV and movies had absolutely no part in our lives. Reading was to be either the Bible or the Spirit of Prophecy. Other Christian writers were seen as unsafe to read unless they were quoting the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy and had our same belief system. Nature-based books were allowed. I have fond memories of reading the Sam Campbell series. Books definitely couldn't include talking animals since animals can't talk, so that didn't fall under the guidelines of Philippians 4.8. Quote, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things, End quote. Many of these verses had also been put to music, so we could easily correct someone by just humming the tune, and they would get the point and change their behavior. Subtle. Back to books, though. If a book mentioned something that didn't align with our principles, we might scribble it out, especially in a children's book, and rewrite something else in its place. For example, if it said, we go to church on Sunday, we might cross out Sunday and write Sabbath or Saturday. Fiction was entirely forbidden, except for a few historical fiction books on Reformation history that we had. We were so faithful and so consistent that that still puzzles me to this day, how that fiction was allowed into our home. No movies, as I mentioned, but documentaries on the stories of the great reformers, including scenes of burning at the stake, were somehow not seen as potentially scarring for impressionable minds. Go figure. There were also the sermon-type or educational-type videos, the ones detailing the hidden ways pagan symbols can make it into our homes through patterns on floor tile and certain toys definitely nothing disney related was allowed we lived under constant self-scrutiny and scrutiny of each other well i don't think any one of us would have come out and clearly said that our salvation depended on avoiding the use of black pepper or eating fruit and vegetables in the same meal it was definitely implied that if you are getting ready for jesus to come you're going to be faithful in every small detail. Even a small infraction or disobedience of the councils was not okay, no compromise. Small compromises led to big compromises. Small infractions were signs of big heart problems. This lent itself to constant fear and hypervigilance over every thought, every action, every word. Jokes and laughing were often treated as inappropriate since the Bible says that we will give account for every word in the Day of Judgment. I embraced it all. I was a really good girl, very compliant, and a very good rule follower. I don't remember really questioning things or feeling rebellious in any way. I seemed to thrive on the security of having almost every detail of my life being decided for me. I mean, it was what I knew. But it was a lot to juggle, a lot to remember, because the level of perfection God's people would have in order to be saved when he came, there was no end to it. We were constantly learning and understanding more details about how to dress even more modestly or eat and live even more healthfully. So there was no end to seeking out another level of faithfulness and obedience. It was an elusive perfection. In retrospect, I recognize that this level of hypervigilance would have an effect on one's nervous system, that a freeze or appease state of the nervous system can show up as compliance. I was a really, really good girl, but was that really such a good thing? Thank you for listening to Reeling from Religion. If you have thoughts, feelings, or questions you'd like to share, I invite you to join me on Instagram at reeling.from.religion to comment under this episode's post. Thank you for sharing this space with me.